got your bulletin still handy. Why don't you flip that over on the back? I won't apologize for asking you to write a few things down this morning. I think it's important. You forget 80% of what you don't write down, so write it down. Anyway, I'd like for you to write something down that is not in your outline on the back of your bulletin, so play along. I want you to think of, when I mention these things in just a second, some names that you'll write down. Maybe just a list, get about five names or so that you're going to write down. Now, don't start writing them yet because you don't know which names you're supposed to write down. Some of you have already written down, well, there's John and... You know, I mean, you're just writing some names down. Not yet. Hang on. <clears throat> I want you to make a list. And for some, this will be a very easy list to make. For others, you might have to think a little bit. For others, you maybe just do not make this particular list because maybe it, it, it's not important to you. It doesn't matter. But, but I want you to think of family or coworkers or friends Maybe people you see on a regular basis, maybe at uh, Walmart or the doctor or wherever it is that you might uh, find yourself on a at least semi-regular basis. Think of some of those people, and I want you to write down the names of those people, and, and maybe you just describe them. Uh, that Maybe you don't know their names completely, but you describe them. Names of people that you're not sure where they'll spend eternity. You're just not sure. It's not that you think they're bound for hell. You just don't know. You're just really not sure about those folks. Maybe there's some family members, and you say, you know what? They seem like they're pretty nice folks, but I I just I really don't know. I'm not sure where they'd spend eternity. And it's not one of those things trying to scare you. Well, if you were to die today, where you know where? Great question to ask. I'm not trying to scare you with it though. But but those family members, or maybe it's a coworker. Maybe you work on the line next to someone and, and, and you're just not real sure. Or maybe you pass somebody in the hall at work and you all stop and talk there at the coffee maker or whatever it is and you, you spend your 15-minute breaks together and, and you talk about lots of things, but that's really never come up. And you know what? I'm just not sure. Or maybe, maybe you're, you're uh, much to your dismay, you're a student and school's going to start here in, what, less than a month now? Is that wild? And so... Um, and, and so you think of those people that you know, maybe you haven't seen them over the summer, but, but you know you'll run into them again. You'll have a class with them. Or maybe it's a teacher. And you say, you know what, I've talked with them, and we've, we've hung out. We've done things on the weekend together. We, we've, we've, we've been friends now since second grade, but I, I just don't know. Or maybe it's that person, like I said, that you see on a semi-regular basis, and you might not even know their name. You just describe them. That person at, uh, at Walmart who who hands me the cart and the little wipe to wipe down the cart when I walk in. Sweet people. I love those people. If it wasn't for them, I'd have dirty hands all the time because I never think of that stuff. Here they go. They give you that thing. What about that person? Write those names down, and, and I want you maybe on the top of your bulletin, just kind of block those in. Just, just keep those handy. And whether or not you continue to take notes on the, on the rest of this, I want you to, to have that handy. And then for those of you who are either members or regular attenders of our church, meaning that you probably live right around here somewhere, close, I want you to write down some some other names. Not names of people, but names of streets. Write down Post Oak, and Old Newburgh, and Purdom, and 94 East, and Grove Lane, and the other names of streets that pop into your mind where you know, you know what, there's several homes on those streets. And I can't be sure 
that all the people living on that street are bound for eternity in heaven. I just don't know. Maybe you'd write down Post Oak and Old Newburgh and 94 East and Purdom and Pottertown and Grove Lane, all, all the roads that you think of. And you keep those two lists handy as we move through our time this morning. Turn with me in your Bible, if you've got it handy, to Acts chapter 17. Acts is over in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the book of Acts. Acts chapter 17. And we pick up this particular portion of Scripture when Paul is on a missionary journey. And he has traveled around, and we saw last week he... He endured serious hardship for the glory of God. He saw hardship become a tool in God's hands to strengthen him, to bring glory to God, for God to display his power, to reach other people. And he continues on in his missionary efforts, and he, he is sent away uh, based upon some other hardship to Athens. And Paul, as we pick up the story, is in Athens, we'll see here in verse 16, and he is waiting for his companions for Silas and for Timothy to join him. So he sort of has this interim time where he's, he's waiting for his friends to join him. He's in a place that doesn't seem to be, that, that lines up with his beliefs about life and so on. Athens, we'll see, is a, a different kind of place. But he's waiting there for Silas and for Timothy to join him. And, and as we continue, and, and in a couple of weeks, we'll wrap up this particular series. We'll look at Paul this week and Paul next week, and then we'll sort of have a culminating message the last Sunday of July. But what we've been doing for the last several months is looking at 11 different lives from Scripture. And what, what can we learn from them in particular as people? What can we learn as far as how God worked in their lives? We know that God does not change. The Bible says He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if so, if God worked in a particular way in someone's life, we can take those general principles and say, well, God is the same. He can work in the same way in our lives, just like we saw last week. He worked through hardship with Paul. He can do the same with us. And, and we come to the Apostle Paul, and we see that Paul's life is, is marked by lots of different things, and it's impossible to study the life of Paul and not talk about his missionary work. Paul was the first and greatest missionary that Christianity has ever known. He certainly uh, was an aggressive missionary going from place to place, town to town, planting churches, pastoring them for a while, handing them off to elders in those towns, and moving on to somewhere else. His goal was to take the gospel of Jesus to places it had never been before, to the, to the ends of the known world. And that was Paul's goal. And so that's sort of what he's about. And so this morning, we're going to look at part of his missionary effort and a little bit of his strategy, and how can we pull something from him? What can we learn as a principle from Paul's life and from his missionary journeys? Now, this story will show us clearly, and certainly his life shows us very clearly, that Paul was about a very, very simple but profound and powerful principle. So we learn, you'll see on your bulletin there, we learn an important truth from Paul's life and from his direct experience, as we'll see in Athens, and I want you to make sure you get this down. This principle, if you apply it to your life, if we'll apply it to our church, it will, it will drastically uh, change our perspective. Uh, we, we will see God work in and through us in ways that maybe we've not experienced before, and I think and firmly believe that it will bring us great joy to do so. The principle is simply this, to reach the people no one is reaching, we must do the things no one is doing. To reach the people no one is reaching, we must 
Do the things no one is doing. Look at verse 16 of Acts chapter 17. With that principle in mind from Paul's life and from this episode. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was troubled within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. Idols simply being something that people worshipped, gave their devotion to, aside from God himself. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worshipped God, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Then also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers argued with him. Some said, what is this pseudo-intellectual trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was retelling, or rather he was telling, the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Now pause there, verse 18. Paul encounters a variety of people here in Athens, some different categories. He first runs into the Jews in the synagogue. Now Paul's practice was to go first to the synagogue, proclaim the good news to the Jews, hopefully to convert them to Christianity and faith in Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of all of their belief in the Old Testament God. The fulfillment, of course, found in Jesus Christ as God came to earth. So he goes first to the Jews, and then it says to those who believed in God. Those were the people who were not born Jewish, but converted to Judaism and joined the Jews in their worship uh, of the God of the Old Testament, obviously. Um, and and um, Paul first goes to them. You have here this category of these religious people. They're spiritual people. They're probably folks that you would look at and say, they're, they're good people. You know anybody like that? Extremely religious. They're, they're really spiritual people. You look at them and you just think, boy, they, 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 they must really love God. They really follow Him. They're good people. They, they seem to have great ethics and morals. But it was evident to Paul, based upon what he knew about being Jewish, that they might have been good and even religious and spiritual people, but they didn't believe in Jesus Christ. And so their being good and religious and moral and spiritual people wasn't enough. They needed the Lord Jesus Christ. So he encounters this category of people. Then it says he, he was in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Remember how I said just write some names down and maybe that person you encounter from time to time, the person at Walmart or the doctor's office or wherever it is. Paul here encounters what may have seemed to be just random people, just ordinary folks that you might see in, in just doing your daily activities. He may or may not have become familiar with them. It says uh, he was every in the marketplace, so maybe he knew their faces, maybe he recognized them, I don't know. But these are just random, seemingly ordinary people that he bumps into. He begins to talk with them. Then he runs into two different groups that would likely intimidate uh, many of us, if not all of us in this room, the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Now that just sounds intimidating saying it, doesn't it? Epicurean and Stoic. It's just something about that. But the Epicureans were pleasure seekers. They were hedonists. They viewed life as having meaning only when you found pleasure in it. Now you can imagine what that led them to. It led them to many sinful and ungodly behaviors, but they viewed life, you get one shot at it, they thought, there's no afterlife, there's no God, so go for it. Now I cannot for the life of me understand why anyone, and you may be in this room and you might claim this, why anyone claiming to be an atheist would not live just the way these guys lived. I have no, no, no reason to understand why in the world, if these guys were atheists and they just pursued pleasure, why anyone who says there is no God would not do the same thing. And many of them do. Many of us would claim we believe God is there, but we live as practical atheists because we, just, we, we, we claim He's there, but we live as if He's not. These guys said He's not there and we're going to live just like He's not. They had no rules. They were materialists and pleasure seekers to the furthest degree. The Stoics, on the other hand, 
found meaning not in seeking pleasure, but just in enduring life. Maybe you know a person. Maybe your dad or granddad was like this. Maybe you're like this. Things happen, and they show no emotion. None. Now, some of you in here are baseball fans. Some of you are not. Some of you are Yankee fans, and I will pray for you. (laughs) As I've told you before, Hank, my son, knows that the only team he cannot pull for is the Yankees. That's it. It's the way you get to sleep outside at our house, and he can't do it. But I was amazed at the Yankees in the late 90s and through the 2000s so far that the runs that they've made under their manager at the time, Joe Torre, were made with a stoic manager. Absolutely stoic. If you've ever seen a game in a World Series when the Yankees played in it, Joe Torre, now I'm going to have to sit over here to show you. I'll sit over there in a minute so you all can see me. <clears throat> it wouldn't matter what's going on. Joe Torre sat in a dugout. About like that. Player strikes out. Let me come over here. He didn't move as much as I just did. Somebody gets a hit. They win the World Series. He kind of cracks a smile. I mean, it's amazing to me. He's a stoic kind of guy. You know people like that, don't you? You know people like that. They, They just... Their, their goal is just to endure life, just to treat it as if, well, I sort of expected that would happen, kind of like Eeyore almost, you know, well, you know, just going through life and just, just deadpan face. Those were the stoic philosophers. They, they viewed themselves as self-sufficient. I don't need anybody to endure life. I can make it on my own. I'll be just fine. Thank you very much. They believed that human potential was unlocked through reason and thinking and philosophy, and so on. These are the people that Paul encounters. The random, the ordinary, the the intellectual, the religious, the skeptical, the curious, the confused, the sinful. He encounters all these types of people. Do you encounter people like that? You encounter anybody who's spiritual? They don't know why, but they are. Encounter anybody who's skeptical of your belief in Jesus Christ? Skeptical of the church? Anybody who's a little curious? What's that all about? What are you talking about? Anybody who, who's a little bit critical of you, why in the world would you believe something like that? Anybody who's just seemingly random, you just think, why do I keep bumping into that person? Somebody who's just ordinary, just people you work with. Maybe you encounter people like that. Maybe they're intellectual, and they are, boy, they're thinkers. They're always analyzing stuff and thinking about it, and they seem so smart. Truth is, they're just pretending that they're smart because they're not that smart, you know, but they're pretending real good. At least that's what I try to do every once in a while, pretend that I am. But you know the truth is that when we encounter categories and groups of people like this, our tendency as Christians, our tendency as churches, just churches in general, is to encourage our people to avoid those categories of people. Our tendency often is to say, well, you know what, that's, a, that's kind of an intimidating atmosphere. I'm not sure you're ready for that. Or those are some negative influences. You probably should remove yourself completely from all negative influences whatsoever. Isn't that our tendency sometimes? To say, well, you know what, they're a little skeptical of our beliefs, so I'm not sure we should really talk to them much. We probably should avoid them at all costs. They're, they're just... Uh, They're a little too intellectual for us. You know, we just live by faith and not by sight. Maybe we should just avoid those conversations. But typically, we we try to avoid situations like that. But thankfully, Paul was not a typical Christian. Paul was not at all a typical Christian. 
Nor was he into following that kind of advice that would say, you know what, Paul, you're in Athens. You don't understand about the Athenians. They don't quite agree with you. They're not going to support your lifestyle and your choices. You probably should move on. Paul didn't take that kind of advice. He looked only and always to the example and the words of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting. And I'm not going to ask you to turn there. But in Luke chapter 19, Jesus, the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus. Do you know what Jesus was accused of? He's gone to be the guest of sinners. Hmm. Jesus in John chapter 4 sits down with a woman at the well. And he breaks down all the racial and social and gender barriers to present to her the salvation of God. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus takes children into his arms that everybody else had shunned. And Jesus says, don't prevent them from coming. And he puts his hands on them and he blesses them and embraces them. In Mark chapter 14, we see the story of Jesus eating in the home of a man with leprosy. With the Bible says a serious skin disease. Do you realize that lepers were cast out of town and any time they got remotely close to somebody, they had to scream, unclean, unclean, so that nobody could get the diseases they had. Jesus was in the guy's house. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus commands ministry to the poor, to strangers, to the sick, to those in prison, to the down and out, those who can never repay us for what we do. In Matthew chapter 9, the question is asked, why does, why does Jesus, the disciples are asked, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus responds, he says, those who are well don't need a doctor. I've come for those who are sick. I've come for sinners. And we could stop there and just praise God for the fact that Jesus came to save people like you and me. Every one of us in our sin, we're dead. We need the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he died to, to bring us that life. We need to understand, and we could stop and just celebrate the fact that people who are sinful and spiritually dead apart from Jesus Christ have found life in Him. That His death is a substitute for us. Because truly, Paul knew that's the only story that matters. But Paul knew that story was the only one that mattered, that mattered and he didn't let it stop with him, but he takes it to other folks. Look in verse 19. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus, and said, May we learn about this new teaching you're speaking of. For what you say sounds strange to us, and we want to know what these ideas mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling and hearing something new. So Paul is taken here to the center of town. We don't know if he's somehow put on trial, there's, there's, there's debate over that, or if he's just given the opportunity to speak. But either way, he takes advantage of it. And then... In verses 22 and 23, we see this. Then Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every aspect. For I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship. I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Paul here is demonstrating his understanding. He, he, he figured them out a little bit. He figures out a way to talk to them. Yes, intimidating atmosphere. Yes, negative influences. But Paul goes beyond all that and figures out a way that he can sort of find an in with them. You ever known somebody who's just great at conversation? They're just, they're just great at seeming to figure out something you're interested in talking about. And they just they know the right questions to ask. They know the right thing to say at the right time. And you just love talking to that kind of person. Paul's that kind of guy. Paul's the kind of guy that he studied them a little bit. He figured out... What is it going to take for me to be able to begin a conversation with them and sort of get on some common ground? And he does that. 
He says, I know you're religious, and you've got this, this idol and these inscriptions to an unknown God. And he says, what you've worshipped in ignorance, I now proclaim to you. He's going to take it to that next level. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, He is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man He has made every nation of men to live all over the earth, and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of, of where they live, so that they might seek God, and perhaps they might reach out and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and exist. And even as some of your own poets have said, for we are also His offspring. Being God's offspring, then, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. The content of Paul's message here is amazing. He presents God as creator and as Lord. He says he doesn't live in shrines. You know what? I praise God that when we leave here, he does not go to sleep in what we call the red room upstairs. God doesn't stay here. He lives in us as believers in Jesus Christ. Are you not thankful for the fact that, that you don't have to come to a certain place at a certain time to have the presence of God in your life? Now, I'm not encouraging you not to show up to church. Don't take it that way. But what an incredible truth that when we leave here, we don't leave the Spirit and the presence of God. He goes with us. Paul says, that's who I'm talking about. You can't build the house of God. He says, people who believe in Jesus Christ are the house of God. He says He is Creator. He is Lord. He needs nothing from us. He is perfect, certainly without us. He says He gives life to everything that exists. He rules and He controls everything that happens. And He sustains everything and everyone on the earth. Paul presents to them as part of his message that God is creator and Lord. Then look at verse 31 or 30 rather. Therefore having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has set a day on which he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man, that's Jesus, he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Part of the content of Paul's message was that God is creator and Lord, also that God is savior and he is judge. He is certainly full of grace and He is full of mercy. He appointed Jesus to die in our place and He calls us to repent and to believe. That's His grace and His mercy in action. But at the same time, and equally so, they're not in opposition. Understand this. He is, yes, full of grace and full of mercy, but He is also full of justice and full of righteousness. At the same time, equally so. Because as Paul mentions here, and as we know from certainly reading the, the Scripture, that there is coming a day where each one of us will stand before the Lord. Each one of us will stand before the Lord individually. I won't stand there and someone else can stand with me. Danny can say, well, look, you know, uh, Brad and I were friends and I was a believer, so he kind of gets in with me. The only person that I can stand with that gets me into heaven is Jesus Christ and Him alone. And one day I will either find myself standing with Him or standing alone, and if I'm not standing with Him, by His grace and through faith in Him as the Son of God, the only way for salvation, I will stand alone and face judgment for my sin. And Paul says there is coming a day when every person will be judged. And we don't get in if we've tried on our own. We only get in if Jesus takes us and says, this one is with me. We get in only by His grace through our faith. Now that's the same message that Paul had always preached. Paul had always told people that we were created to glorify God. 
But we rebelled against God. We did things that glorified ourselves, sinful things, both willfully and in ignorance. We've done things to sin against God. And because of that, we deserve eternal punishment, Paul would tell them. And he would tell them that only a perfect sacrifice can pay for the sins of those who are imperfect. His message was always that God sent that perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ, who lived a flawless and sinless life. And only He, being both God and being both perfect man, could die on behalf of sinful man to satisfy the wrath of God against sin. And Jesus did it willfully and out of love and mercy. And in order to receive the forgiveness that we might not even know that we need, we must be converted brought to new life through repentance that's turning from our sin, our unbelief, and through faith by trusting in Jesus alone for salvation. And seeing that happen in our lives change forever. Paul tells them the same message he had always preached. He says the time of ignorance is over. He says, men of Athens, what you've worshipped in ignorance, I proclaim to you, the time of ignorance is over. He says it's time to receive God's grace through repentance and faith. And here we have in Athens... Paul doing what no one else seemed to be doing to reach people no one else seemed to be reaching. Paul goes to the philosophers, to the ordinary, to the intimidating, to the negative influence. And he begins to do and say and operate in ways no one else was doing. To reach those who, apart from Christ, were certainly doomed to eternal hell. Paul thought that that truth was a big deal. That apart from Christ, no one gets into heaven. He thought it was a big deal, and he did something about it. And my challenge for us today is to think that it's a big deal as well. And to do something about it. And there are two things that I want to leave you with that you can take and begin to put into practice as you think of how can I do some of the things no one else is doing to reach the people that no one else is reaching. We learn from Paul's example that, number one, we must study them. Verses 22 to 24, Paul demonstrates he knows something about these Athenians. He's studied them. He's understood them. He's figured out a way in his time in Athens to know how to talk to them. And, and for the people that are on your list, for those names that you've written down, for the streets that we've written down that are close in proximity to our church, if we, if we want to reach them, we first have to study them. We've got to understand them. This is the place for us to start. I want to challenge you this week. Pick at least one person who's on that list. And you may have written down just name after name after name. But pick at least one person who's on your list and find out this week some facts about them. If you don't know when their birthday is, figure it out. Send them a card. If you don't know when their anniversary is, if they're married, find out. If you don't know some of the major events that have taken place in their lives some of their, their, their joys that they've experienced in life, the birth of children maybe, or a job promotion, a, a big move that they experienced, whatever it is. If, and if you don't know their sorrows, the tragedies that have happened in their lives, you don't know their story, see what you can do this week to figure it out. Study them just a little bit. Danny may be a guy I work next to there at Briggs and Stratton. What am I going to do to study, to learn a little bit about Danny, to try to build a bridge somehow between me and him based upon some common ground that I might be able to find, to figure out when Danny's birthday is, anniversary, times that he's gone through that have been hard, the joys and pains that, he, that he's experienced, and, and begin just to sort of 
celebrate when they celebrate, hurt when they hurt. Now, I'll tell you up front, that requires a lot of love on your part. It really does. It's going to require some genuine interest because if you're faking it, people are going to know. It requires lots of questions you're going to have to ask. Sometimes that's hard to do because some people are just plain hard to talk to, aren't they? You just ask them question after question. And I used to be a youth pastor, and teenagers sometimes are the hardest people to talk to. I love teenagers, and I I love my time as a youth pastor. But I remember when teenagers would visit our church, and I would get their information, and I would call them. And it was a one-way conversation on the phone. And they must have said, I guarantee you, maybe one word about six grunts. You know, that's all I got from them. And I'd say, hey, you know, my name is Brad. I'm, I'm the youth pastor at Valley View Church, Louisville, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Well, how you doing today? Everything go okay at school? Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, well, listen, I know your family visited churches last week. Mm-hmm. Well, did it go okay? Yeah, I guess. Well, listen, I hope you have a great day tomorrow, and, and, and I'm happy that you're here. We'd love to have you get my Okay. Well, listen, it's been great to talk to you. It's so, you know... It's just some people are just hard to talk to, are they not? Oh, my goodness. And listen, you might be one of those people that's hard to talk to. You know, I, for you, I may be the person hard to talk to. I don't know, but, but you just got to ask lots of questions. And you got to do a lot of listening. But if you truly want to find out about somebody, if you're truly concerned about their, their eternal security in Jesus Christ, is you'll endure those tough conversations. You, you'll keep, keep trying. Keep plugging away, keep asking questions, keep receiving the few words and a couple of grunts. And you'll say, you know what, I'm doing it not because of, of, of what, the way it's going to affect me and what they're going to think of me. I'm doing it because I care. I'm doing it because it's the mandate of Jesus Christ and I want to bring glory to Him. And if I've got to endure those kind of conversations, then so be it. It requires love to study them. Genuine interest, lots of questions, lots of listening. And the second thing that Paul demonstrates is to engage them. Study them, engage them. Paul, throughout this entire story, is engaging them over and over again. He's not sitting and waiting for somebody to come to him. This is an important point. Don't miss this. In today's world, as much as we may lament this fact, let me tell you what is true in today's world. You know this, and none of us can stick our heads in the sands and pretend this is not true. All right? Many people, and and it's growing, and if not now, most people in our world do not look first to the church in times of trouble. They don't. I wish that were the opposite, but it's not. So, consequently, as a result, we can no longer, as Christians and as churches, simply wait for people to come to us. We must engage them. That's the world we live in. Whether we like it or not, at this point, honestly, it doesn't matter because it's true. I've talked with many of you, and in fact, I love talking with many of our senior citizens, our, our folks who have been around for a long time. They tell me the same exact thing. They say, you know, it used to be 50, 60 years ago that, that whoever lived right around here just came to church because there's nowhere else to go. Nowadays, they've got any kind of way they want to go and go all over the place, and most of them don't go anywhere. Most of them have no, no concern whatsoever about the teaching of the church, the people of the church. We've got to engage them. We've got to go after them. We've got to do that with our presence. You can't engage somebody. You can't 
begin to talk to somebody if you're never around them. We've got to engage them with our time. And most importantly, that presence and that time leads to an opportunity where we engage them with God's truth. We need to understand this. We're not out to make them a better person. We're not out to make them nice. We're not out to, to make them a better worker. We are out to see them submit their lives to Jesus Christ and believe in Him as the Son of God, receiving His salvation. That is the end. The end is not be a nice person, be a better worker. The end is to see them encounter a life-changing experience by faith in Jesus Christ. So we tell them the same message that Paul told them. But we do that as we engage them with our presence and our time. As we find a way to build a bridge to those that no one is reaching. To get creative in doing the things for those people on your list and those streets and folks around us. To get creative in doing what no one else is doing. To serve them, to help them, to invite them, to pray for them. Some of you say, you know what, I'm not really in a stage of life right now where, where maybe, maybe life is stressful. Maybe I'm not physically able to do the things that you're probably thinking we should do. Do you realize that as long as you have your mental faculties about you, that you can pray and don't ever underestimate the power of prayer ministry. You may say, I can't do all the things I once did. Listen, I'm not going to ever get on you about that. That doesn't bother me in the, in the least. Not at all. We all have a part to play in reaching those that no one else is reaching. Maybe you would say, you know what, I'll just ask somebody next time I see them. Hey, I, I typically pray on a regular basis. Is there any way I can pray for you? You might not be able to do anything else for them, but praise God, He's given you the ability to pray for them. So just because you may be a person whose life stage is a little difficult right now or physically you're not able to do things, doesn't mean you should feel an ounce of guilt about this message. doesn't mean that you should, should write it off. Engage them however you can. And as a church, to those who live around us, my goal, I'll be honest with you, I, I talked with some folks not long ago about how we can do some things for the students that, that will come, the, the college students. I, I'm not looking, I told them the same thing, I'll tell you this too. I'm not looking to start a college ministry at Elm Grove. What I'm hoping we'll do is minister to college students. You see the subtle difference. I don't think that we have to start a ministry for every single person that will ever encounter our church, but we can minister to every one of them. And we've got great people here who can do that. Wonderful, wonderful, God-loving people who can do that. So this is not about a program. It's not about anything like that. It's just about us seeing them through the lens of the cross, the lens of eternity, and saying we'll study them, we'll engage them, we'll do our part to reach them. So look back as we close at that list. Some of you put your bulletin away. Now listen, you ought to know by now. I've been here now almost three years. You ought to know by now. I get to the last thing on the bulletin. I'm not done. It's not over. Some of you said, kind of, amen, under your breath. Now listen, be nice. Look back at your list. Who's, who's on that list? And I, I, I just want to ask you some questions as you look at those names and those streets. Are those people being reached for Jesus Christ? And if they're not, do you care? The truth is, if we see life through the lens of the cross and the lens of eternity, we have to care. It's not optional. We have to care. So then the questions become, are, are you willing to do what no one else is doing? Are you willing to study them? Are you willing to engage them? 
Will you ask God to use you? Will you admit your fear, your reluctance, your, your awkward feeling? We all deal with that. Will you admit those things to God and say, Lord, you know what? I'm just going to give those things to you, and I'm going to trust that you're going to figure it out, and you're going to help me. Maybe that's where you start this morning. Maybe you just ask God, Lord, help me to see life and see every person through the lens of the cross and the lens of eternity. That if they don't come to the cross, that eternity for them will not be in heaven. It'll be spent in hell. And then my final question for you would be, maybe there's a name that you didn't include on that list that you wrote of people that you're not sure about where they'll spend eternity. And maybe that person is you. Maybe that person is you. And you say, you know what? You're talking about reaching people, but I've heard a different message today. I've heard a message that I'm the one who needs to be reached. I've heard a message that, that I'm the one who needs to admit my sin, my guilt before the Lord. And I'm the one who needs to humble myself and by faith receive the grace of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. I'm the one who needs Jesus in my life. Maybe if you're honest, you'd say, you know what? I can write down lots of people. Lots of folks I'm not sure about. But the number one person I'm not sure about is me. The Bible makes it clear you don't have to be unsure. You don't have to wonder, are you on the path that leads to heaven? God didn't give us multiple options. Praise God, He didn't. Because we'd have to guess. We'd have to wonder. He gave us one option and one option alone. And that is to come to Jesus Christ, submitting ourselves to Him, confessing our sin, and asking for His forgiveness. To say, Lord, I need You. I want Your salvation. I submit to You as both Savior and as Lord. You can be sure. You say, well, do I say some magic words? Is there some particular prayer to pray? It's a prayer of repentance. It's a prayer of belief. A prayer of submission. A prayer of repentance. Lord, I turn from my sin. God, I might be young. I might be old. I might be somewhere in between. But I turn from my sin. It's a, it's a prayer of repentance. It's a prayer of belief. I believe in you, Lord Jesus, as the Son of God. And it's a prayer of submission. I not only receive you as Savior, Lord. I not only do that, but I receive you as Lord. My life is now in your hands. Maybe this morning you're on that list and you'd make it sure. by Praying a prayer of repentance, a prayer of belief, a prayer of submission. Don't leave this morning without making the commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ to submit your life to Him and to study to engage those people no one is reaching by doing the things that no one is doing. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the chance to understand your word, to see an incredible example in the life of Paul, and to be challenged, Lord, to see life through the lens of the cross and through eternity. So God, make us people who do the things that no one else is doing to reach the people that no one else is reaching. Thank you for those that are on our list or for those who we need to reach personally. Thank you, Lord, for the people that you have placed strategically around our church, those that we need to reach corporately. And Lord, for those this morning who had to write their own name on that list, God, I pray that today would be the day they'd pray that prayer of repentance and belief and submission. 
We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the hope that is found in the cross, the hope for this life and for the next. And we pray in your name. Amen.